welcome to the first podcast uh, concept lecture for Law 309, Professional Legal Conduct at CSU. These concept lectures are short uh, sound bites, I suppose, that pull together the key concepts of the particular topic we'll be working through each week as we study this fascinating subject. It's no substitute for careful reading of your textbook and obviously the cases that have been set for the week, but Hopefully, after you've done your readings and had a think about some of the concepts and cases where that's been exemplified, the concept lecture will pull together for you those uh, ideas. So welcome to the subject. It's really tempting, isn't it, to think that a subject like this at the end of your degree usually is a bit of an optional extra, um, an easier subject that, although it's called a Priestley 11, is not as complicated as others. Now, whilst it's true that the rules of legal conduct are relatively straightforward in that they won't bend your mind quite like tort law, I would suggest that this subject, out of all that you have studied so far, or all that you will study, is arguably one of the most important subjects of all. That is, if you intend to enter the legal profession. Now, I acknowledge that some of you may not have any intention to enter the profession, Welcome to the ride, and I'll still do my utmost to make this as interesting and fascinating as a course of study for you. However, if you do intend to practice, I hope that of all of your subjects, this subject will inspire and enthuse you to be the sort of professional that the world desperately needs. And I hope that some of the things that you learn on this journey will stay with you forever. There's a lot of debate about whether law schools should teach legal ethics as a standalone third year subject like we do, or alternatively, whether it's something we should be teaching as an aspect of each and every subject. And that's an interesting debate because really ethics intersects with each and every area of law. So for example, in civil procedure, avoiding abusive process and certifying reasonable prospects of success would be a logical place to teach the rules of professional responsibility. But regardless of these debates, we're going to look at how the rules intersect with a variety of legal contexts. And we're going to do that through conceptualising the various stakeholders that a legal professional has responsibility to. This includes the court, the client, your employer, other legal practitioners, society itself. We will study the rules of legal conduct as applied problem solving. So we'll be looking at how the rules actually shake down, I suppose, or apply in ethical situations. The subject is based around a number of tricky scenarios that you will have to think through using IRAC problem solving each week. And indeed, you will have noticed that your assessment in this subject is all based around a rather large ethical problem. So we'll be considering uh, not only how the rules of conduct inform what the lawyer should do, but also considering what we might do if we're faced with a particular situation. In this first podcast lecture, I will overview how lawyers are regulated through intrinsic values and extrinsic values, and looking at how sometimes these align quite nicely and at other times they really clash. That will make us ask the question, well, what's the value of having so many rules and regulations? The legal profession is one of the most highly regulated professions in all of Australia. We will also consider the general structure of the uniform law and its related rules. And then we'll overview the complaints and discipline process, which we'll come back to again in a later topic, but it's important to understand 
it is part of the regulatory machinery, I suppose, that uh, regulates and deals with the legal profession in Australia. We're also going to consider in this lecture how lawyers are admitted to legal practice and what is required in that regard. So let's get started. Lawyers occupy a critical space in the functioning of society. They preserve and protect the rule of law and their conduct is tangibly connected to the respect with which society treats the law. In a recent survey by Roy Morgan found that the perception in society of lawyers and their honesty and integrity is at an all-time low. 26% of uh, people surveyed said that they considered lawyers had a high ethical compass. That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if the perception differs from the reality. Now, whilst many students no longer study law with the aim of admission to practice or intend to work as a solicitor or a barrister, the relevance of understanding ethics and the rules of professional conduct remain a vital attribute for you as a law graduate. It's also essential that you understand and form a commitment personally to upholding the rule of law in whatever professional capacity you choose to work within. In this subject, I'll often refer to the practice of law from a solicitor and barrister's perspective, but that doesn't mean that this perspective is inapplicable to you. It's simply often the best way of conceptualising and exemplifying the various rules of conduct that govern legal practice. The practice of law is a profession. It's not a business. However, you'll soon find that once you enter the world of legal practice, it feels a lot more like a business than a profession because billable hours, work in progress, client retention and landing clients is the measure of your success. Certainly, that was my experience in the private sphere and private practice. In government, it could be slightly different, but nonetheless, being effective and output is often how our success is measured. However, lawyers owe duties to a variety of stakeholders. They don't just owe a duty to the client and their obligation is not to just make money. They owe an obligation first and foremost to the court and the administration of justice. Implicit in that is a commitment to promote a fairer society and a more just society, to not only work within the parameters of what the law is, but to work on the law to make it fairer more accessible and just. And it is this aspect, that societal altruistic obligation, that distinguishes the practice of law from being just another business or profession, and also requires that legal practitioners at all times are and behave as a fit and proper person. We'll have a look at what that concept fit and proper person is further on. Professional legal conduct is shaped by a variety of factors that are both intrinsic or internal to a person and extrinsic as well. Now, extrinsic rules or factors are things such as the law, the legal profession uniform law, the solicitor's conduct rules, the general rules and all the other types of rules that very much regulate how we operate. Uh, it's also regulated by the law in terms of the principles of tort, contract and equity. So extrinsic rules are easy to identify and we will be predominantly preoccupied with extrinsic rules and how they might apply. But frequently what you're going to notice is that those intrinsic rules, the things that come ex internally, intersect with the extrinsic rules because the extrinsic rules are based around some intrinsic personal qualities such as 
honesty, candour, integrity, independence, impartiality. Intrinsic values are harder to define, but they're no less important in shaping how we think, behave and act. Intrinsic matters includes values, as I said, like honesty, loyalty and integrity. Now, these are the premises on which our rules of conduct are based, and sometimes the intrinsic and the extrinsic factors coincide nicely, and there's no conflict. However, sometimes they can clash violently and create a real quandary as to how you behave ethically. What do I mean by this? Well, let's consider an example. The Legal Profession Uniform Law and its associated regulations under the general regulations define what is and is not trust money. And they provide very complicated rules for accounting for this trust money. And the basic principle is that it must never ever be used for any purpose other than that which the client instructs. Now, that seems like a relatively simple concept, and indeed, we probably all would agree from our intrinsic internal values that things such as do not appropriate or use your client's trust money for any purpose other than what they have authorised is an easy principle. Here, the rules of conduct align with what I would think most people agree on an intrinsic personal level, namely, you should not steal. However, how about this? You accept instructions from a person who is charged with an offence of brutally bashing and killing an intellectually disabled child. This person is detestable, arrogant, rude and narcissistic. Regardless, you believe that everybody deserves a fair trial and legal representation. Your client instructs you that they're innocent of the crime and a plea of not guilty is entered. However, on the morning of the trial, the client admits to you that they did the crime and not only that, they enjoyed it. You're instructed not to disclose this to the court or to anyone else. No one can, no one else is available to represent this person at this stage of the matter. What would you do? Intrinsically, your ethical values may feel that this person no longer deserves competent legal representation and frankly deserves a life sentence. Their crime is heinous. Their attitude is revolting. However, The extrinsic rules of professional conduct, namely rules 9, 13 and 20, give you very clear parameters around what you can and cannot do in this situation. And guess what? You can't dump that revolting client, nor can you tell the police or the court what they have done. And there are very good reasons for this, and those reasons are that the confidentiality of the client and the duty of the court must be very carefully balanced. Now, I hope by this rather extreme example, you'll see why we need extrinsic rules of conduct and we don't just rely on ethically what we think internally is right. I want you to know that there's going to be times that your intrinsic values tell you to act contrary to what the rules of conduct actually require. The rules of conduct are there as your compass and not your burden. This is a profession you are entering and not just a job. And it's a profession with more experienced colleagues who will be your greatest ally and help. You will need to use them. Now, the conduct rules do not and cannot cover every situation or tell us how to act in every ethical conundrum. In setting out the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules, the Law Council of Australia noted that the conduct rules contain overarching ethical principles that guide and inform professional conduct without prescribing every possible detail. 
So what happens then if you have an ethical situation where the conduct rules are silent, but you don't know how to behave? Well, it's here that we have to rely on our intrinsic values and the ethical framework to help us inform our decisions on how to act. The common law certainly gives some guidance considering disciplinary matters, which we will, and how other professionals, professional practitioners have acted in similar circumstances. And we'll also consider what ethical considerations should be first and foremost in a practitioner's mind. But sometimes, however, we find ourselves in uncharted territory. And here, understanding the general principles that inform the conduct rules and noting that the legal profession is self-regulating, we will turn to the advice and collaboration of more experienced practitioners. And that might mean the people who will be supervising you in legal practice, your law society or the Bar Association. Why does all of this matter? Well, how lawyers behave reflects on how the law itself is perceived by society. Lawyers are required to act with the highest ethical standards and in the best interests of their client and the community. Consider the extreme damage to the standing of the legal profession and the community perception of confidentiality with the Lawyer X saga and the Royal Commission that followed. Here, a criminal barrister acted as a police informant at the same time she was representing several of Australia's well-known criminals. Ms Gobbo allowed her intrinsic values, namely her revulsion at organised crime, to overcome her adherence to the ethical rules of conduct that required her to protect her client's confidentiality. She passed information on to police, including how best to limit Tony Mockbell's movements while he was on bail, and providing Victorian police with the details of credit card transactions along with his tactics on how he planned to fight cocaine smuggling charges. Not only did her conduct breach the rules of professional responsibility, but it was a more severe ethical and moral breach of loyalty and, du and duty of confidentiality to the client. And this was in and of itself an attack on the rule of law itself. The High Court's view on this ethical breach was very clearly and um, quite uh, pronounced in terms of their judgment, which was a judgment concerning whether her identity should be disclosed. The court said... The situation is very different, if not unique, and it's, it is to be greatly hoped that it will never be repeated. EF, which is now known as uh, Nicola Gobbo's actions in purporting to act as counsel for the convicted persons while covertly informing against them, were fundamental and appalling breaches of EF's obligations as counsel to her clients and of EF's duties to the court. Likewise, Victoria Police were guilty of reprehensible conduct in knowingly encouraging EF to do as she did and were involved in sanctioning atrocious breaches of the sworn duty of every police officer to discharge all duties imposed on them faithfully and according to law, without favour or affectation, malice or ill will. As a result, the prosecution of each convicted person was corrupted in a manner which debased fundamental premises of the criminal justice system. It's a pretty scathing judgment and it shows the implications of ethical decisions based on intrinsic values whilst ignoring the rules of conduct. So let's now turn to those extrinsic rules of professional responsibility and you're going to get to know them rather well. Now it's important to understand there's a difference between legal ethics on the one hand and professional responsibility on the other. Ethics are those principles and values that act as a guide for behaviour by lawyers when they practice law things such as honesty, 
keeping confidence, loyalty. Professional responsibility rules, however, is the ability to banish, uh, sorry, to balance the various duties that lawyers owe, both to the client, whilst at the same time to the court, to other lawyers and to the community. Professional responsibility can include things such as time management, self-control, and acting within your expertise and not beyond it. Such aspects feed into the idea of competence, which is one of the many overarching principles that inform our solicitor's conduct rules, see Rule 4.1.3. Now, these responsibilities are usually articulated in conduct rules or in legislation, and they incorporate ethical principles such as honesty. Virginia Shervington notes that it is when a lawyer transgresses the rules of professional responsibility that they also fall foul of good practice and will face either an action by their client or a disciplinary action. The extrinsic rules that pertain to all lawyers in New South Wales and Victoria and soon Western Australia as well, which will bring 75% of the profession under this regime, are those rules created by the Law Council of Australia and the common law that determines the application and definition of the rules in practice. The Legal Profession Uniform Law commenced on the 1st of July 2015 in Victoria and New South Wales. The aim behind this uniform legislation are as follows. Firstly, to provide interstate and territory consistency in the law that applies to the Australian legal profession. Secondly, to ensure legal practitioners are competent and maintain the highest of ethical and professional standards. Thirdly, to enhance the protection of clients and the public. Fourthly, to empower clients to make informed choices about their legal options. Fifthly, to provide efficient, effective, targeted and proportionate regulation. And finally, as a co-regulatory framework with an appropriate level of independence for the legal profession. The uniform law is rather complicated in the way it's enacted and adopted by each uh, state and territory, and it has a very extensive regime in delegated legislation with regulations as well. The uniform law established the Legal Services Council and the Office for the Commissioner of Uniform Legal Services. The council's role is to set the rules and the policy behind the uniform law. The Legal Services Commissioner oversees dispute resolution and compliance functions. Investigation of complaints and discipline against practitioners is managed by each state or territory's Legal Services Commissioner and the delegated regulatory bodies such as the Law Society and the Bar Association. And Within your subject or your text, you will see uh, these bodies in the hierarchy of governance in accordance with a diagram. The uniform legislation was created with the express purpose of creating a nationally consistent system of regulation. It was enacted as Schedule 1 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law of 2014 in Victoria, and the Act is adopted as a uniform provision with uniform legislation in each participating jurisdiction by each state passing a Legal Profession Uniform Law Application Act. So you will have in New South Wales the Legal Profession Uniform Law Application Act, which mirrors that contained in Schedule 1 of its Victorian counterpart. You will need to be familiar with the provisions of the Uniform Law but also with the Uniform Law Application Act, because the Application Act have important functions uh, 
that are jurisdictionally based, such as appointing specific bodies, such as local regulatory authorities who um, do things such as uh, investigate complaints and so forth. Uh, by way of example, the Legal Services Commissioner of New South Wales is a delegated local regulatory authority under the Application Act and is responsible for complaints and disciplinary functions under Chapter 5 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law. You can see which professional bodies are appointed as local regulatory authorities under Part 4 of the New South Wales Application Act and you can also see their specific functions and obligations and it would be good to have a look at the legislation in this area. In both New South Wales and Victoria, they have adopted the uniform law um, through the application acts in their respective jurisdictions. And as we speak, Western Australia has moved its application bill to the third reading speech, and it was expected to be enacted this year, but more likely will be enacted in 2022. And you will see 75% of the nation's lawyers therefore coming under the uniform law provisions. The legislative rules that govern day-to-day -day practice are contained in a number of legislative instruments that you have to be familiar with, and these include the Legal Profession Uniform Law, each state's Application Act, the Uniform Rules, and that includes this Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules, the Continuing Profession Professional Development Rules, the Uniform Admission Rules, and the Uniform General Rules. All of these are relevant depending on which aspect, I suppose, of professional life you're dealing with. Uh, guidelines and directions as well, which are issued intermittently by the Legal Services Council or the Commissioner, um, where the local regulatory authorities um, clarify how uh, it's clarified how they're to function under the uniform law by the Commissioner. So, what happens then if the solicitor's conduct rules, for example, one of those uh, delegated pieces of legislation need to be amended? Well, the process is quite involved. And again, I have a flowchart on amendment of that legislation contained in your text and your subject materials. It's an elaborate process that either the, um, the law council uh, begins through consultation with the public and the profession and it then goes to the Attorney General's Standing Committee tabling it as a legislative instrument after a consultation process. In this regard have a look at part 9.2 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law. So um, often the peak consultative body which is the Law Council of Australia will begin that process um, by identifying where there might be a hole in the rules or a need for revision and indeed there was a lengthy consultation process that they conducted two years ago looking at the conduct rules and whether they required any change or updating and there was actually some minor updating to the rules made as a consequence of that process. Now we will be dipping into a number of these rules um, the admission rules and the continuing professional development rules, for example, but you'll need to become incredibly familiar with the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules and the Bar Rules because this is really the main area that you will intersect with in everyday legal practice. The paramount duty that is clearly expressed in Section 3 of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules and also in its counterpart in the Bar Rules is the duty to the court and the administration of justice. So as you can see from this structure, the rules were developed by the Law Council of Australia in accordance with Section 427 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law, and they're made by the Legal Services Council under Part 9.2 of that law. 
Now, the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules um, are legislation. They have legislative effect. And if you need to look at this, Section 419 of the Uniform Law makes this very clear. The objective of the Solicitor's Conduct Rules is stated in Section 4 to be the objective of these rules is to assist solicitors to act ethically and in accordance with the principles of professional conduct established by common law and these rules. Now, I encourage you to go and have a look at the conduct rules and to print off your own copy from the New South Wales legislation site. You can also download a copy from the um, Law Council of Australia. Become familiar with what they are and how they are set out. They're not extremely lengthy, they're quite easy to read, and consider the various areas of professional responsibility they cover. And we'll be covering each of those areas in a topic each week in the subject. So let's now consider how this legislative machinery, I suppose, um, disciplines and deals with complaints about the legal profession. The first aspect to note in this regard is that the Supreme Court of each state and territory has what we call inherent jurisdiction over all legal practitioners. Inherent jurisdiction is what the court exercises when it admits, disciplines and strikes off the roll legal practitioners in New South Wales and indeed in other states. Inherent jurisdiction is common law in nature and it is not displaced or limited in any way by the legal profession uniform law. In this regard, see section 16 and 264 of the Uniform Law. And that is why the Supreme Court remains the court to which disciplinary cases are appealed to, and it is still the body that rules on its own motion or recommendation by a tribunal that a practitioner be struck off, and it's the same body that admits practitioners to the role of legal practitioners. We'll talk more about inherent jurisdiction when we get to the complaints and discipline topic in the subject, but for now it's important to acknowledge this aspect. It is seldom that disciplinary cases go to the Supreme Court, but nonetheless, that is where the buck stops. The Uniform Legislation sets out the procedure for complaints handling and discipline of practitioners under Chapter 5 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law. It would be good to pause the podcast now and familiarise yourself with that section of the Act and the various parts of it. Part 5.2 deals with the complaints process and the way these are to be made, the way they're then classified and handled by the local regulatory authority of each jurisdiction. Now, I have tried visually to represent generally the complaints process in your topic notes and your text, um, and in this regard, do have a look at your materials. Important to note that any person can make a complaint against a legal practitioner, a solicitor or a barrister. Uh, it's not just the clients of that practitioner, but also their colleagues or the judiciary who may indeed make a complaint or any member of the public. Legal standing to make a complaint comes at section 266 of the Act and requires that the complaint be made to the Legal Services Commissioner and that it be made in writing, identifying the person uh, who is making the complaint the lawyer and the conduct that is complained of. Now, once a complaint is made, the Legal Services Commissioner makes preliminary investigation to determine if the complaint is either a consumer matter, which uh, is normally a cost matter, um, or it could be some other small uh, misdemeanors in relation to professional conduct, or whether alternatively it's a disciplinary matter, which is a case where the finding may be of unprofessional conduct or professional misconduct, a more serious charge, can be established against the lawyer. 
Some cases will straddle more than one category and they're called mixed matters. But it's important to understand the distinction because the procedure for dealing with the complaint varies depending on the classification of the matter. To make things a little more complex, the local regulatory authorities have the power through an instrument of delegation to delegate some of their investigative and prosecuting powers um, for disciplinary matters to other professional bodies. And they have this power under Section 406 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law and uh, under Section 38, Subsection 2 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law Application Act of New South Wales. Now, if we look up the instrument of delegation that um, has been exercised, we will see that the Legal Services Commissioner of New South Wales has delegated its functions under Chapter 5 and Chapter 7, insofar as they concern complaints and discipline, to the Law Society Council. The Commissioner does this because of the sheer volumes of complaints that it has to deal with and it makes it possible for a complaint to be handled um, by either that office or alternatively by the Law Society or indeed the Bar Council as well. So thus sometimes you will see as you start reading the disciplinary cases that the prosecutor or the party bringing the charge against the practitioner that's being disciplined will be the Council of the Law Society or the Council of the Bar Association or indeed it might actually have been retained and dealt with by the Legal Services Commissioner and that's why you'll see a variance in the name of the disciplinary cases. As previously noted, one of the first things the Commissioner does when a complaint is received is to determine if it's a disciplinary matter from which a finding of professional misconduct or unsatisfactory professional conduct may be made, or whether it's a consumer matter under Section 269 of the Act. Consumer matters include all of those sorts of complaints that might result in something that's not a disciplinary finding. So, namely, they don't amount to unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct. Consumer matters concern things like tardiness, poor communication, rudeness, disputes about costs agreements, um, <clears throat> provided, of course, that the bill is under uh, $100,000 and the amount in dispute is less than $10,000. Consumer matters are required by the legislation to be mediated and the Legal Services Commissioner has very broad powers under the Act to resolve consumer matters. They can do things and make orders requiring that documents or files be transferred between practitioners. They can order an apology. They can resolve a dispute about fees. They can make orders to improve communication between client and lawyer. They can resolve other disputes with the lawyer. They can formally caution a lawyer. They can require further training, education, counselling or supervision of a lawyer. Uh, they can require that the work that is the subject of the complaint be redone at no cost to the client or to waive or reduce the fees for the work. And they can importantly also make an order that compensation be paid by the lawyer to their client. Now, of course, not all matters are consumer matters and some matters may have elements of consumer and disciplinary matters and we call those mixed matters. In mixed matters, the Legal Services Commissioner will often separate the actions and address the consumer issues separately and then proceed on the disciplinary matters, usually at a tribunal, um, unless they can deal with it in-house. Disciplinary matters arise when lawyers breach the rules of professional conduct. And it's important to understand the legislation's distinction between consumer matters and disciplinary matters by looking at sections 296 and 297 respectively. 
Now, the definition of unsatisfactory professional misconduct and professional misconduct can be found at sections 296 and 297, and it's important to be very familiar with these. Professional misconduct is the most serious allegation a lawyer can have made against them as a member of the profession. Disciplinary matters may or may not be handled in-house by the Legal Services Commissioner, and Section 299 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law provides that the Legal Services Commissioner may make a finding of unsatisfactory professional misconduct against a practitioner, and they may make a range of orders, such as penalties that include reprimands, compensation orders, the redoing of work, apologies, counselling, supervision, etc. That's in relation to unprofessional sorry, unsatisfactory professional misconduct. However, where the Legal Services Commissioner is satisfied that the conduct complained of may amount to professional misconduct, the more serious charge, or that the unsatisfactory professional conduct is better determined by a disciplinary tribunal, then the proceedings have to be commenced uh, in a designated disciplinary tribunal of the, dis the jurisdiction. In New South Wales, that tribunal is the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, better known as NCAT, and the division that those proceedings are commenced in is the Occupations Division. Now, the local regulatory authority, be it the Legal Services Commissioner or alternatively the Bar Association or the Law Society, act as the prosecutor of the disciplinary charges. The tribunal has extensive power to make orders in these sorts of matters and section 302 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law sets these out. Do have a look at that. By example, these include they can remove a barrister or solicitor's name from the role of legal practitioner, the local role, or make a recommendation to the court that that occur. They can suspend or cancel a practicing certificate or impose conditions on that certificate. They can issue a fine of up to $100,000 if they're guilty of professional misconduct. Um, that fine can be up to $10,000 if they're guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct. They can reprimand. They can order that further legal education be undertaken. Um, they can also order that the practice of the solicitor be subject to periodic inspection or supervision and that they have conditions uh, placed on legal practice. So it's quite extensive under section 302, the orders that the disciplinary tribunal may make in a professional misconduct context and it's important to be familiar with those. Um, we're going to look further, as I said, at discipline and complaints process further in the subject, but for now it's important to be aware of how the Tribunal and the Supreme Court interact with the local regulatory authority in terms of complaints resolution and disciplinary matters. Let's now turn to a happier uh, topic and that is admission to legal practice. The admission to legal practice is something uh, that is also subject to regulation and oversight by the profession and its various bodies that are appointed under the uniform law. Because law is a profession and not a job, and you'll hear me talk about this a lot, it's a profession that's so integral to the rule of law and the administration of justice, not everyone's fit to be admitted to legal practice. Now that sounds rather elitist, but it is valid. Those who have a poor regard for obeying the law or upholding the law, those who are unfit in health or attitude, and that can be through no fault of their own, 
will not be fit to be admitted as a legal practitioner. So just because you have a law degree doesn't mean you have an automatic right to legal practice and to be admitted to the role of practitioners. The completion of your undergraduate studies in law is one step towards legal practice, but is not by any means the complete picture. Only those who demonstrate competence and good fame and character, or in the words of the legislation, are fit and proper, can be admitted to the role of legal practitioners. There are three main steps that you need to do to be admitted to practice in New South Wales. Firstly, you need to have completed an accredited law degree, undergraduate law degree, and that degree in its accreditation is required to cover the educational requirements that are set down in legislation, namely Schedule 1 of the Legal Profession Uniform Application Act. Now, more on this in a moment. You are secondly required to have completed, in addition to your undergraduate studies, an accredited practical legal training course, or alternatively, the equivalent of this in legal experience. Thirdly, you're required to be what's called a fit and proper person, and that's meeting character requirements for admission to practice. Now, this is done or evidenced through the execution of a statutory declaration that discloses all relevant factors to the court for um, obtaining um, a compliance certificate that will confirm that you are fit and proper and eligible to admission for legal practice. And this is submitted to the local regulatory authority, which in this case is the, for New South Wales, the Legal Practitioner Admission Board. Now, once you've completed all of these three components, you then apply for admission to the role of legal practitioners and the Supreme Court, who is moved to admit you, admits you as a lawyer. On being entered to the role, you need to then decide whether you're going to go to the bar and practice as a barrister, or alternatively, whether you're going to apply for a practicing certificate and practice as a solicitor. So once you're admitted to the role, you are simply a lawyer, and you then work out what you're going to be. Now, for solicitors, you need to obtain the practicing certificate, and that will initially be restricted for a period of two years, whilst you obtain the relevant legal experience that you require. You also need to complete continuing professional development uh, courses to ensure that you are current in four areas of competence practice. To be admitted to practice at the bar, you need to sit and pass the bar exam. And you also need to complete a period of reading for 12 months under a more senior barrister. Let's turn firstly to the educational requirements. So accredited law degrees are required um, to, for you to complete a recognised level of study um, in another or another jurisdiction's uh, recognised level of study for at least three years. An accredited degree contains prescribed content, namely the Priestley 11 subjects, uh, which you'll be well familiar with. Schedule 1 of the Legal Profession Uniform Admission Rules contains a description of the academic qualifications and content that is to be covered in an accredited law degree. And that is what has informed uh, what we teach you in your subjects at CSU. All jurisdictions also require a component of practical legal training, which is two years experience in legal practice after completing a PLT course. Um, this requirement for workplace experience and practical legal training are detailed in Schedule 2 of the Legal Profession Uniform Admission Rules. 
Now, in terms of mutual recognition, under the Mutual Recognition Acts that were legislated in 1995, each of the states and territories have the provisions that allow for recognition of practising certificates from other jurisdictions in order to facilitate trade and commerce across Australia. Under the Legal Profession Uniform Law in 2015, New South Wales and Victoria have similar provisions in that law to give recognition to other jurisdictions um, in relation to a national travelling certificate. Uh, let's now talk about the third component, that fit and proper person. What constitutes good fame and character is a matter that is determined by the Legal Profession Admission Board. And it's also further elaborated quite extensively in case law, particularly admission cases, and also quite sadly in cases where practitioners have been struck from the role because they're no longer of good fame and character. In the Legal Profession Uniform uh, Application Act rules, Rule 17 requires, sorry, admission rules requires that a person be of good fame and character. Um, and that this also is what form, informs the determination of whether they're fit and proper. So these two concepts are bound up with each other. And in this regard, have a look at Rule 10, subsection 1F. Let's turn to the cases. They're probably um, more helpful in defining what exactly this fit and proper person is. In the prothonotary of the Supreme Court of New South Wales and P 2003 Court of Appeal judgment, the New South Wales Court of Appeal noted that good fame and character is comprised of two aspects, and I'm quoting from the judgment. Fame refers to a person's reputation in the relevant community. Character refers to the person's actual nature. McBride and Walton, New South Wales Court of Appeal, Clarehan and Register of Motor Vehicle Dealers. Uh, not quoting any longer. What constitutes fit and proper was considered by Justice Pagone in Frugenet and the Board of Examiners, 2002 Victorian Supreme Court judgment. And again, I'm quoting from the judgment. The requirement for admission to practice law that the applicant be a fit and proper person means that the applicant must have the personal qualities of character which are necessary to discharge the important and grave responsibilities of being a barrister or solicitor. A legal practitioner, upon being admitted to practice, assumes duties to the courts, to fellow practitioners, as well as to clients. At the heart of all of those duties is a commitment to honesty, and in those circumstances when it is required, to open candour and frankness, irrespective of self-interest or embarrassment. The entire administration of justice in any community which is governed by law depends on the honest working of legal practitioners who can be relied upon to meet high standards of honesty and ethical behaviour. As you can see from this extract in this judgment, the idea of candour, honesty and integrity are integral, I suppose, to the idea of good fame and character or fit and proper person. Accordingly, past events in your life that may have involved dishonesty or criminal conduct or a disregard for the law are highly relevant to determining whether or not you are now of good fame and character and a fit and proper person. Now, these matters must be disclosed before admission to practice and they're not necessarily a bar to practice. It's a matter that's determined on each and every personal circumstance. And well, this leads to the sort of the question, I suppose, of what sorts of things need to be disclosed to the admitting bodies if you want to be admitted to legal practice. Uh, 
Now, the Admissions Board often publishes guidelines detailing this, and in New South Wales, there is helpfully a lack guide for applicants for admission to the legal profession. And I do encourage you to review the guide for application because it provides a non-exhaustive list of examples of the type of conduct that you should be disclosing in your statutory declaration for your compliance certificate when moving the court for admission to practice. So things that might be relevant as to determining fit and proper include social security overpayments or offences concerning abuse of government benefits, academic misconduct, inappropriate conduct, so that can be general conduct that might reflect negatively on your character, whether in the workplace, in clubs, voluntary positions, educational institutions, etc. This can include things like bullying, harassment, racial vilification and sexual harassment, particularly any dishonesty offences, whether it's resulted in criminal charge or not. Obviously, past criminal conduct is highly relevant. Any apprehended violence orders or intervention orders. Traffic offences. False declarations you may have previously made. Tax offences. Insolvency and bankruptcy. All of these matters have to be disclosed before admission and all of them are relevant to determining fit and proper person. What is of interest to the admitting bodies is how you've conducted yourself in the past and how you conduct yourself through the course of your legal studies. Just because you have had a conviction in the past or an illness doesn't automatically mean that you will not be accepted to admission for legal practice. And you'll see some pertinent examples in my book where admission has been granted despite a criminal history. Equally though, there are cases of one instance of academic misconduct, for example, where admission has been denied solely on that ground because the court considered the academic conduct suggested that the character of the person seeking admission was dishonest and therefore not fit and proper. In this regard, see the case of Re-AJG, where the Supreme Court of Queensland declined admission for one finding of academic misconduct because of the dishonesty that it involved. On admission, there is considerable discretion available to the admitting tribunal to determine applications and the more information and more frankness in disclosing any problems you've had in the past, the better. You'll note also that I have a section in the text in relation to mental health and that's also important as to the ability to execute in legal practice and is another matter that should be declared when seeking admission. Simply because you've battled with mental health doesn't mean that you're not a fit and proper person and not somebody who should be admitted. But again, it is a relevant factor as to competency and the ability to execute legal practice that again goes to the qualities of a legal practitioner and fit and proper person. If in doubt, always disclose. The obligation to be a fit and proper person is an ongoing obligation. It's not just that one-off admission process. It continues to be the case for the rest of your time while you practice. Every year on renewal of your practicing certificate, you have to disclose any matters that might render you unfit. So uh, too, when we see the Supreme Court striking a practitioner from the role, it is because the court has determined that they are no longer a fit and proper person to practice. It's worth considering and uh, pondering as you look through the case law. It's worth reflecting also on yourself and the qualities intrinsically you must have and uphold and value 
and also how that translates and influences the extrinsic rules of professional legal conduct. Thanks for listening and I look forward to speaking to you again in our second podcast lecture.